Okay, as you can see on the screen, our Bible reading is from 2 Corinthians, as we're still moving through that book, uh, chapter 11, beginning at verse 16 and going through to chapter 12, verse 10. So Paul says, I repeat, let no one take me for a fool. But if you do, then tolerate me just as you would a fool, so that I may do a little boasting. In this self-confident boasting, I am not talking as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many are boasting in the way the world does, I too will boast. You gladly put up with fools since you are so wise. In fact, even when you put up with anyone who enslaves you or exploits you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or slaps you in the face... To my shame, I admit that we were too weak for that. Whatever anyone else dares to boast about, I'm speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast about. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jew, Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have laboured and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressures of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak? And I do not feel weak. Who is led into sin? And I do not inwardly burn. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is to be praised forever, knows that I'm not lying. In Damascus, the governor under King Artus had the city of Damascenes guarded in order to arrest me. But I was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall and slipped through his hands. I must go on boasting. Although there is nothing to be gained, I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. I will boast a man like, about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself, except about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool, because I would be speaking the truth. 
but I refrain so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say, or because of these surpassingly great revelations. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Morning, everyone. It's uh, great to be able to share from God's Word with you this morning. Thanks, Jono, for the passage. Uh, it's uh, a bit of a doozy, uh, but that's okay. It's okay. <clears throat> uh, my sermon is a QR code, and you can download it uh, from the front of your bulletin today. Uh, let's pray. I'm gracious, Father, as we reflect on your scriptures this morning, we pray that you would teach us, rebuke us, and train us in righteousness so that we might boast in our weakness and not in our strength, that we might preach Christ and glorify him. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, over the past 25 years or so that I've been a Christian, I've had the privilege of hearing many people's personal testimonies of how they came to follow Jesus as their Lord and Saviour. It's always great when we listen to people's testimonies and hear about how God brought them to faith through uh, his word and it's a great time to again remember and thank God that we don't bring anything to our, to our uh, faith apart from our sin and foolishness. The trick as you would know though when giving your testimony is to make sure that you glorify and bring praise to God uh, rather than yourself. That your testimony is about God's goodness as the speaker and not how lucky God is to have you on his team. Uh, that's why testimonies are the most powerful, right? They're able to get the balance right between sharing someone's story and also pointing those who hear it to God and his grace. Um, as you think about stories, though, and personal testimonies, I think one of the recurring themes is weakness. The term weakness isn't probably used, but the concept is there. People say things like, I tried to do things my own way, but realised it wasn't working, so I turned to God. As I was driving along, I felt empty and alone, so I pulled the car over and suddenly I wept, and in that moment I called out to God. Although I grew up knowing the promises of God, I realised that my life and actions didn't match up to my words, and that I needed to change, that I needed to take God more seriously. And it's in these and other moments of weakness in our lives that we see God powerfully move. We see his grace capture people's hearts, which in turn moves them to repentance and faith. And it's this movement of weakness to power that we see displayed in the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul that I really want to pick up and for us to think about this today, this weakness to power. Uh, in 2 Corinthians 10 and the beginning of 11, we've seen the danger of the so-called super apostles or false apostles 
were to God's people in Corinth. Not only were they questioning the legitimacy of Paul's ministry, but the ministry of these false apostles was one of deception, chapter 11, verse 3. And in the end, as Ben pointed out last week, they proclaimed another Jesus and another gospel entirely. So in foolishness, so to speak, Paul decides to join in and do some boasting of his own. And what we have to see, though, in the midst of this is that unlike the so-called super apostles, Paul's boast is not in his gifts, visions, or his commission as an apostle. His boast is in his weakness and the power of God at work in him. So let's have a look at verse 16, where Paul begins by talking about the nature of his boasting. Verse 16. I repeat, let no one take me for a fool. But if you do, then receive me just as you would a fool, so that I may do a little boasting. In this self-confident boasting, I'm not talking as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many are boasting in the way the world does, I too will boast. You gladly put up with fools, since you are so wise. In fact, you even put up with anyone who enslaves you or exploits you or takes advantage of you or pushes himself forward or even slaps you in the face. Uh, one of my favourite shows that I was allowed to watch as a kid was The A-Team. Does anyone actually know who The A-Team is? Excellent. I love it when a plan comes together. And uh, one of my favourite characters was Mr T. And what was his famous line? I pity the fool, right? Here he is right here. I pity the fool. And I think here Paul is channeling Mr T or maybe the other way around, right? It's Mr. T who comes up with the famous line, but as we read this here, it's the Apostle Paul who pities the fool more than any other. Paul seems to call himself a fool for joining in doing a little boasting. Paul calls the Corinthians fools for putting up with false apostles who enslave them and abuse them. And Paul calls the false apostles fools for the way they speak and the way that they treat the Corinthians themselves. Fools! Paul's boasting and foolishness, though, is different. I'm not sure if you've realised, but up until this point, Paul has actually boasted three times already. But the way that he boasts is important for us to see. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12. Now, this is our boast. Our conscience testifies that we've conducted ourselves in the world, and especially in relations with you, in the holiness and sincerity that are from God. There's his first boast. In the passage before, in chapter 10, verse 8, Paul has boasted about his authority. For even if I boast somewhat freely about the authority the Lord gave us for building up, rather than pulling you down, I will not be ashamed of it. And I think most importantly, in 10, chapter 13, he says, We, however, will not boast beyond proper limits, but will confine our boasting to the field God has assigned to us, a field that reaches even to you. Paul will boast, but his boast will be in limits and boundaries and appropriate boasting, and that's what he goes on to do in verse 21 in that second sentence there. He will boast foolishly about a few things here. Verse 22 are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. Paul says, like Evander Holyfield did, I am the real deal. 
Don't question, super apostles, my upbringing and education. Sure, I was born outside of Israel, in pa- and I grew, but I grew up in Palestine. I was taught by Gamaliel, in, educated in the strict sense of Judaism in Jerusalem. I'm a Hebrew. Don't question my connection to God's covenant. I'm an Israelite. Don't question my connection to Abraham. I'm one of his descendants. And don't you dare question if I'm a true servant of Christ, because I am more. Of course, Paul probably didn't say it like that, though, right? I have this picture of Paul being in some stinky, cold room. He's got his friend, the scribe, writing his words down. And Paul's probably walking around the room, putting his hands on his head, throwing his hands in the air like you see some Middle Eastern guys doing as they're talking. And as he's thinking about these things and saying these things, in verse 23, he's actually going, I'm out of my mind talking like this. But it's at this point that Paul teaches the Corinthians and I think us what he means when he says he is a better servant of Christ. How is Paul a better servant of Christ? Have a look, verse 23. Here's his CV. I've worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely and exposed to death again and again. Five times I've received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open area. And he goes on. He's faced dangers. He's laboured and toiled and often gone without sleep. He's known hunger and thirst. All these things. What qualifies him is his list of hard work, his persecution, abuse, danger and discomfort. Above all, though, it seems, Paul's chief weakness, so to speak, is in verse 28. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches and for those individuals who are weak and who are led into sin. His greatest care as a servant of Christ is for his churches and for those individuals who are themselves weak. So much so, he says there, to those who are led into sin, he burns inwardly in anger towards those who lead fellow Christians astray. That's what qualifies Paul to be a servant of Christ and that's what he will boast in. I wonder if we put an ad for a new assistant minister into Southern Cross, what we would put, how this passage would help us at that moment. One of the dot points could please, please boast in your weakness and see what we got. See, Paul doesn't say anything here about being a good speaker, not having a successful ministry. He could have boasted about the church as he's planted his spiritual gifts but his boast, rather, is in his weakness in his ministry, the fragility of his life and his concern for the godliness of his churches and his Christian friends. I want to be a, I want to be a part of that guy's church, right? I want to be a minister of Christ like this guy. But if that's not all, Paul goes on to say, not only is that I'm weak in this way, I've got some personal weakness that I want to share with you, which he then goes on to share In the next section, he makes it, it would seem, even more personal. Chapter 11, verse 30, if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. I think my personal 
weakness. And he says it again later in chapter, in chapter 12, verse 5. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself except about my weakness. And Paul provides us with two examples, the first being lowered in a basket from the city walls, and secondly, his famous thorn in his flesh. We can read about this episode in uh, Acts chapter 9 of him being lowered through the wall. In Acts chapter 9, he's been preaching, he's just been converted, the Apostle Paul, and he's been preaching that Jesus is the Son of God in the synagogue, and he's been proving to the Jews that he is the Christ. And the Jews, with the help of the local authorities, plot to kill him. However, his friends and disciples lower him down the wall in a basket and he escapes. I've never been lowered in a basket at a window before, even when I was trying to date Jodie and knocking on her window. I didn't have to escape very quickly. Paul, though, here is lowered in darkness and shame in a basket out the window. And I take it as this is one of the first things that happens in his ministry. It sort of left this indelible mark on him as he begins his ministry. I remember back in the day of high school, it was uh, assembly at Ulladulla High and all the school was gathered and I, for some reason, had got an award and I went up to the front of the school and I picked up my award and as I turned around, I slipped and fell down in front of the school and embarrassed myself completely. It left an indelible mark on my mind. And this here is Paul's indelible mark. Although it says in Acts chapter 8, he increased in strength and confounded the Jews, he flees in the night alone and wandering in the dark. After so much success, he must have felt weak and a failure. His greatest weakness, though, I think, is his thorn in the flesh. This thorn given to Paul by God because of his vision's and revelations. Have a look with me, 12, 12, uh, chapter 12, verse 2 to 4. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know, but God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise. He heard inexpressible things things that man is not permitted to tell. His greatest weakness is this thorn in his flesh. And this whole episode is very strange, right? As we read about it, it's a strange episode, but not only that, it's a strange way for Paul to talk about himself. But I think he does it on purpose because Paul never does things that are not purposeful in that sense, right? I think his point is not that he actually... It's not that he actually had this vision, but rather what happens because of it. Paul shares this not to make himself out to be some special Christian or because he thinks it will add to his status like the false apostles, but rather he tells this story with minimal details so that he can boast about his weakness, so that no one will think more of him than is warranted. And I suppose for many of us, I think we would probably do the difference, right? I'd be all on about the vision, and not about my weakness, but Paul here reverses it in that sense. 
And so as a brief aside, I thought I would talk uh, about what these visions and those types of things might be. And you can t talk about this with your Bible study leader or Jono more later. How, what information can we glean about what Paul talks about here? Firstly, I think we want to say that Paul still remembers when it happened 14 years ago. So if uh, this book was uh, written around 55, 56, the visions probably happened around 43 AD, which was sometime between when he was converted and his arrival in Antioch. And this, ha uh, ver this vision happened to him sorry, in a very sudden and a very quick way. As we read, Paul isn't sure about what happened to his body when he had this experience, though he is sure it was a rational experience as he heard things and he remembers it. As we read the passage, I think we need to read verse 2 and verses 3 and 4 in parallel to understand the third heaven and paradise. I think we should properly understand the third heaven and paradise together. The third heaven should be understood as a reference to the highest heavens where God is, the place with, and the place which paradise resides in. And so the emphasis on the third heaven is height, whilst paradise, as we've heard at the cross, where Jesus says, you'll be with me in paradise, and later in Revelation chapter 2, verse 7, is the place or depth where the tree of life is present and where Jesus lives and blesses his people who are with him. So this paradise or heavenly garden, the Eden above, is a place where Jesus is, where he grants immortality and life to believers. Together, Paul seems to have visited this hidden paradise in his vision, this dwelling place of the righteous dead, which is located within the third heaven in the house of God. Whatever happened, though, Paul heard inexpressible things that he isn't allowed to talk about. That's a summary of about 50 pages of commentary. In response to this, Paul's point is, to is not to make us marvel at what happened. Rather, his point is to commend his weakness to us. Have a look again. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. To keep me from becoming conceited because of this surpassing great revelation that was given me, a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Again, we don't, we don't have all the details. We don't know what this thorn is. But as you can see on the screen, I think we can say a number of things. It was given to Paul as a direct consequence of his vision. It caused Paul pain, either physical or psychological, and he asked God to take it away three times. But it was permanent, and God would not take it away, despite Paul's prayers. It was a humbling, and it was designed to keep Paul from becoming conceited. And then although it caused Paul to be weak, it turned out to be something that Paul would boast in, and that was a source of pleasure. The climax of it, though, is in verses 9 and 10. Have a, look. Have a look with me, verse 9. But he said to me, this is Jesus, the Lord. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. 
That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Despite all that's happened to him then, he continues to boast in his weakness. He's learned that God's promise, my grace is sufficient for you, is true. And that because of Christ's power, which rests on him, God's power is over him and protects him in the midst of his life. And this is why he has learned to delight in his weakness. He can say that when I am weak, I'm strong. You can see then why the Corinthians thought he was a fool. Who boasts like this? As we wrap it up, I've got two brief thoughts that I thought we could talk about as we think, seek to apply this passage um, to our lives. The first is some thoughts about weakness in Christian ministry, a problem and a solution. This has so much to teach those of us in full-time vocational ministry, but also Bible study leaders, youth leaders, kids leaders, parents... Okay, everyone, all right, sure. But in particular, for those in full-time vocational ministry, I think it helps us to think, how should we think about ourselves and our weakness as we minister to those around us? What priorities the servants of Christ should have as they pursue church and ministry? But for those of us who are Bible study leaders and youth leaders and kids leaders... How we think about success in our ministry and how this idea of weakness and delighting in weakness is something that we'll need to keep thinking about. What is success? What does success look like as those who minister and share the gospel? Because if Paul's life and ministry are a model to us, and I think they are, and it is, then this model is the most powerful gospel-centred ministry that can happen. And when we trust in God's grace and God's power rests on us, then God will be at work in his most powerful way. As we think about our own tribe, our own evangelical culture, so to speak, one of the problems that we have from time to time is that we make pastors out to be celebrities. We're always looking for the next successful ministry, book or conference that will lead us to think that God is obviously more at work in that place. Always looking for the next new thing, the next program, book or whatever it might be. But maybe success is a faithful team working together, preaching Christ, trusting in God for his provision, discipling people in the gospel, seeking the lost and praying for God's leading in all of this. But what about the Christian life? And this is the great paradox, I think, of the Christian faith. These words of the Lord that my grace is sufficient for you, my power is made perfect in weakness, are not only words of Christ to Paul, but they apply to all of us. Whatever experiences and circumstances of life that make us feel powerless today as the children of God, God's grace is sufficient for you. Although we desperately want to be in control to take charge of our own destiny and plans, sooner or later, 
despite the power that we might have, our intellect, health, personal wealth, influence or position, at some point we will all become powerless and vulnerable. And it's in those moments of powerlessness when we humble ourselves and cry out to the Lord that the grace of Christ is shown and the power of God rests upon us. As you're looking at your small businesses' books and you're trying to get it together and you don't know how it's going to go, God's grace is sufficient for you. As you go to the doctor's appointment and things aren't sounding great, God's grace is sufficient for you. As you're sitting there in the middle of the night, parenting, trying to feed the baby that won't feed, God's grace is sufficient for you. In all those circumstances, whatever they may be, God's grace is sufficient for us. And it's in those moments when we finally humble ourselves, just like we talk about in those personal testimonies, and we cry out to the Lord that the grace of Christ is shown and the power of the cross and the power of Christ rests upon us. God's not calling us to be passive, to just sit in our weakness and resignation. Rather, in God's grace, power, love and mercy, God calls us to acceptance of our weaknesses, to acknowledge it like Paul and to trust him. And it's through this active faith that God's grace and power does its work in our lives. So if you're feeling weak, which I know I am, boast in your weakness. Call out to God. Because Jesus has said and continues to say to us each day, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfect in weakness. Let's pray. Uh, Lord Jesus, you are so good. Your grace is so good, your love is so good, your mercy is so good. And we pray that you would work in our weakness, that we might acknowledge it, and that we might not be passive, but active in resting in you. Help us to know your grace and love. Help us to trust you in the midst of all that is going on. Help us to think about how we might live as people in your grace that is sufficient for us. In Jesus' name. Amen.